I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we'll kind of dive in. Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful for the cool weather. We're grateful for the country in which we live. I pray for all of our servicemen and women around the world who are away from their families, that you would guard them, protect them, and comfort them. Pray for those in California and the fires and uh, earthquake, hurricanes, so many people undergoing so many difficult things. And I pray, Lord, that your hands and your feet would be there to serve them through your people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you know... Uh, you'll text, well, that's not exactly what we wanted to do, but that'll work. Text your questions during class to this number, and we'll try to answer as many as we can. This series has been about, uh, PowerPoint and I are not getting along today. I'll just tell you that right now. We are not getting along well. We're going to restart you, PowerPoint. So there. All right. We're talking about the major religions in the world. And we talked about the fact that most people have predicted that world religions are declining, that the world's going to become more secular and less religious. But in fact, statistics show just the opposite. Our world is getting more religious, not less. We've talked about everything from Darwinism, which is a very evangelistic faith a very evangelistic belief system. We talked about Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and then finally we're going to talk a little bit about Hinduism as well. But all of these major belief systems play together in our world and they interact in some interesting ways. I wanted to show you, we've been doing a little in the news segment. I wanted to show you this. This one comes from India. Narendra Modi is the new, uh, or is the uh, prime minister of India, has uh, kept his promise to, you know, is basically trying to uh, cause economic uh, revival. Under Mr. Modi's leadership, growth has slowed, jobs have not materialized. What's actually been unleashed is some intolerance, threatens the foundation of the secular nation envisioned by its founders. So what's happening is been an alarming rise in attacks against people accused of eating beef or abusing cows, an animal that's sacred to Hindus. Most of those killed have been Muslims. Mr. Modi spoke out against the killings only last month, not long after his government banned the sale of cows for slaughter, a move that the Supreme Court suspended. The ban, which was enforcing the Hindu cultural stigma, would have fallen hardest on Muslims, low-caste Hindus, traditionally engaged in the meat and leather industry. But what you basically see is these clash of belief systems, if you will. Last time we saw that Buddhists and Muslims in conflict in the world, which you don't necessarily think about, and the same here, Hindus and Muslims in conflict because of differences in their belief. One of the questions that I know we're going to get, and I'll just go ahead and start and tell you, what is it with cows in India? So in India, the cow is a symbol of selfless giving. It is a symbol, a maternal figure, a maternal symbol, and so it's held in very high honor traditionally in Indian culture. And so, by and large, Hindus consider cows to be uh, sacred, animals that are held in honor. And so you can see that those belief systems, those cultural practices can really come into conflict. So beliefs matter. Beliefs are not the only thing shaping world events. That's not my point. My point is that they do indeed affect world events. How you answer the fundamental questions whether you're a Darwinist or a Buddhist 
or Christian or Muslim, you're answering certain fundamental questions. How did I get here? What is the purpose of my life? What is good and true and noble? What is good? What is evil? If there are such things as good and evil. What is good conduct? What is bad conduct? Our fundamental, everybody has a faith system to answer those questions. And so different answers to those questions cause really radical clashes at times. You saw in our last lesson with Buddhism that Buddhists view the world, for example, radically differently than Christians do. And I think you're going to see the same thing with Hinduism, and that's what we want to talk about in this lesson. So here's our map of the world, religions of the world. Notice that uh, Hinduism is kind of in the orange. Obviously, China uh, China kind of tends to be partly Hindu, partly Buddhist, and then, of course, a great number of secular people. India, of course, predominantly Hindu. But you'll see Hindus scattered around the world and sometimes in concentration, but basically about 1.1 billion Hindus in the world. And then we've been using this little chart to kind of give us an idea of what that looks like and just what percentage of the world be Hindu. So about 15% of the world's population of uh, almost 7 billion people are Hindus. So we typically start, I want to tell you the history and the origins of Hinduism. That will be short. I'll tell you why in just a second. But the history and the origin. Then I want to talk about the gods and the major beliefs. And I think you'll find that really interesting. Uh, some relationships to Buddhism and some clashes with Christianity. So let's go back in time to about 500 B.C. Those of you that are remembering, so I saw that map when we talked about Buddhism, and that's true. About 500 B.C. in India, if you remember, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, is born in Nepal and dies in India, actually, around 500 B.C. The Buddha's ideas came out of traditional cultural Indian religion, but the Buddha took that in a specific direction and founded a belief system that comes down to us as uniquely Buddhist ideas. But around the same time, you have found for a long time, some of the documents of Hinduism go back into before 1000 BC, but basically Hinduism comes about in India, but it is a fusion of many different cultural and religious beliefs. Whereas Buddhism has no God, as you and I understand a God, Hinduism has a pantheon of limitless number of gods. And we'll talk about some of those in a little bit. Because, and not all Hindus necessarily believe in all the gods, but you basically take a lot of cultural traditions and a lot of beliefs and they come together into what's called Hinduism. There is no founder of Hinduism. There is no one authoritative body for Hinduism. There is no one authoritative divinely revealed text like the Quran or the Bible or the sayings of the Buddha. There's no one text. There are many different texts from many different traditions that offer insight or enlightenment. So Hinduism is a little hard to describe because the various practitioners can be very different. Now, they're held together by some core gods and some core beliefs, and that's what I want to talk about. But when we talk about Hinduism, 
from its very origins, it's not a unified religion in the sense that we typically think of, say, Judaism. You know, you have this one God, you have his revelation of this one document, this Hebrew scriptures, and you have this adherence by this group of people to this allegiance to this one God and this one document. That's not the way Hinduism works at all. So you're going to find a tremendous amount of diversity. So as we go through it, I'll try to point out some of the diverse practices, but they are unified around certain gods and certain basic beliefs. Today, let's fast forward to uh, now. I like this map. We've been using it for all the religions, but here's a percent of population that's Hindu. It's sort of a population distribution. Obviously, if you look at India, that's the darkest color. That's the huge percentage of the population there is Hindu. But as you look at the lighter colors around the world, you'll see that there are Hindus broadly spread through a number of nations. They just don't make up a huge percentage of any given nation, typically outside of uh, India and a little part of China. But that's kind of where Hinduism is spread in terms of concentration throughout the world. Well, let's talk about Hindu gods for a little bit. First, let's talk about Brahma. Basically, there are a lot of Hindu gods, and they come from various ancient traditions. Uh, some of them get renamed, and, and there are different sects of Hinduism that think certain gods are more important, barely even acknowledge the other gods. So it's very diverse, but big, by and large, there's a trinity. There are three major gods in Hinduism, and Brahma is the god of creation. The way this works, and you'll see when we get to the beliefs, you have a god of creation, a god of preservation, and a god of destruction. And so you basically see this cycle. Creation, preservation, destruction. Creation, preservation, destruction. We'll see that when we get to the beliefs, but Brahma is the god of creation. Brahma is the chief god, if you will, in the Hindu trinity. I'm using a Christian word there to kind of describe this tripartite uh, group of, of gods of functions, a spirit, but also personified. This is how Brahma is typically represented as having four faces. Uh, Hindus believe that the, out of the four mouths came the four Vedas, not inspired documents like you and I think, but documents that are studied for their wisdom and insight into uh, the world. So Brahma is the creator god. Then we have Vishnu. This is starting to look a little more normal. Well, I don't know. You probably don't have a little Vishnu on the dashboard of your car, but maybe you do. I don't know. But Vishnu is the god of protection, the preserver. You have the Brahma, the god of creation. Vishnu, the god of protection, the preserver of good. And so this is typically how Vishnu is represented. It's having the four arms holding the disc and the various plants. And this is a traditional representation of Vishnu, one of the three great gods. This is a good time to also talk about the idea of an avatar. An avatar is a concept in Hinduism. We kind of try to describe an avatar. An avatar is a, an incarnation of the god. So when the god Vishnu manifests as a physical 
human being, that's called an avatar. And so Krishna, for example, is the god of love and compassion, is the eighth avatar of Vishnu. Think of it this way, as Vishnu the god of protection, in fact, let me read to you out of uh, one of the sacred texts of Hinduism. This will probably help. Uh, so this is Vishnu talking. He said, whenever, remember, Vishnu is God of preservation, the preserver of good. Whenever righteousness falters and chaos threatens to prevail in the world, I take on a human body, that's an avatar, and manifest myself on earth, an incarnation of the God, in order to protect the good, to destroy the doers of evil, to ensure the triumph of righteousness in every age I am born, I manifest myself. And so if you guys remember the Hare Krishna movement back in the day, it was a big thing in the US for a while. It was basically devotees of Vishnu, but Vishnu in his representation as a God of compassion and love named Krishna, a manifestation on earth. So this idea of avatars or basically manifesting yourself in the material world is a really common idea. And many of the gods have avatars, representations. So not only do you have a lot of gods, you have very many different flavors of each god. And so there are a ton of gods. And I don't say that in a bad way, I'm just saying there are a lot of gods. In fact, one of the difficulties for Christians talking to Hindus about their faith, as you talk to people who are evangelizing across the world, is that oftentimes they will find that Hindus will say, hey, I like Jesus and I tell you what, no problem, I'll worship Jesus. I'll add him in to the gods that I worship. In other words, there's such a disconnect in the fundamental belief system that what Christians think about their God and what Hindus think about the gods really come from different places, and it makes it hard to communicate sometimes. So Vishnu, the god of protection or preservation, and uh, the idea of an avatar. And then finally, the third in the Trinity is Shiva, the destroyer of evil and the transformer. Shiva, this is a traditional representation of Shiva. There are very many different uh, manifestations of Shiva that you'll see, but this is a really traditional uh, viewing of what Shiva, the god Shiva would look like. Shiva is, is kind of that destructive element. If you just think big picture, creation, preservation, destruction. It's a great passage uh, about Shiva as well. This is kind of a famous passage because if you guys remember the... Uh, I don't know if it's famous to you, but it's kind of famous in general. But you remember uh, Oppenheimer when they were doing the atomic bomb and he saw one of the atomic bomb tests? He quoted this line out of the Bhagavad Gita, and it's about Shiva, the destroyer. I am death, the destroyer of worlds, annihilating all things. With or without you, these warriors in their armies will die. I mean, you get the idea of Shiva as that destructive force of evil, and when he saw that, this verse came to his mind. So Shiva is the third god in the kind of the trinity. And so you see they're not just gods, they also embody ideas, this cycle of creation, preservation, destruction. I want to show you a couple of other gods that are just really popular. 
I knew I had to show you Ganesha because the elephant-headed god. Because I knew somebody would ask, hey, what about that elephant-headed god? So Ganesha is the remover of obstacles, kind of the patron of the arts and sciences. Ganesha is widely worshipped by many Hindus. By the way, Brahma, kind of the chief god, not worshipped very much in India, but in some other Hindu areas, worship quite a bit. You'll see a lot of temples to Brahma, not so many in India. Ganesha, widely popular, worshipped in a lot of places. Shakti, on the right, is kind of the divine feminine force. In other words, the divine goddess, if you will, the cosmic mother. She is the girlfriend of Shiva. Okay? Vishnu has a girlfriend too. Her name is Lakshmi. L-A-K-S-H-M-I. You'll, you'll hear that name a lot because it's very famous. So you have a lot of gods and goddesses. These are a couple of the more popular ones that, that you will see, so I thought I would mention them. But in general, you have a lot of gods and goddesses. They often represent certain things like the god of love or productivity or the cosmic feminine force or the patron of arts and sciences. And so you'll see a lot of gods and goddesses in the pantheon and different groups of people, depending on their cultural background and their belief systems, will worship one or more of these gods. So there's not a lot of unifying force in terms of the gods of Hinduism. But if you think about it, it's, even though Buddhism and Hinduism came out of India, they kind of went different directions. You're going to see some real similarities in their beliefs, but Buddha went off, and it's really not a theistic religion. It really doesn't have a god per se. The Buddha's not a god, more than a man, but less than a god, because Buddhists believe everyone is a Buddha. There's Buddhahood, there's enlightenment inside everybody. Hindus kind of went the other way. It's very polytheistic. Many, many different gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon. So a lot of, uh, there's some fundamental similarities, but there are also some really big differences. So let's talk about a few of those, the beliefs of Hinduism. Some of these you're going to see are really similar to Buddhism, and some of them are a little bit different. Let's start with samsara, the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Saw this in Buddhism too, and basically you see it reflected in the gods, creation, preservation, destruction. So birth, uh, living, death, rebirth, reincarnation. Hindus broadly believe in reincarnation, is that you have a soul, and that soul gets reincarnated into another life form. Hindus believe that all life forms have the essence of the divine in them. All life forms have some divinity in them. And so you may be reborn into another form, into another life form, and that you are literally trapped in that cycle. Now, where Buddha said this cycle involves suffering, I want to break that cycle of birth, death, and rebirth to avoid suffering, to achieve nirvana or enlightenment, and I no longer have to be reborn and suffer again. Hindus also see this as a cycle, but less emphasis on the idea of suffering. Remember the Buddha when he, he was protected, he was in the palace, he went out and he saw a sick man and an old man and a corpse, and he realized, wow, suffering is the lot of humanity. Buddhism really trying to answer the question of how to overcome suffering. Hinduism, not so much, a little broader, how to escape the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. So you have reincarnation in both of them. Okay? Question? 
I have, I have several questions about why they have so many arms. <laughs> well, I don't actually know the significance of the arms except to hold the stuff. It's got a lot of things. I don't actually know if there's a terrible significance to the number of arms. That's a good question. That'd be a good Trivial Pursuit question. Um, it's been said that Hinduism is the very first religion. Is that true? It's been said that Hinduism is the very first religion. Yeah, let me... That's, this isn't a, a matter of great passion for me. I would say that if you accept that some of the Hindu documents... And remember, Hinduism is not like one monolithic thing. It, it's a fusion of all kinds of more primitive religious beliefs. Did some of those primitive religious beliefs go all the way back to the time of, say, Abraham, right? Which is where he's the first Jew, if you will. Uh, some think so. And if so, then perhaps it is as old as Judaism. Some would say, oh, the texts go back even further. But in terms of just religion in the world... I doubt that it has a claim or that anybody could determine, is it the first religious beliefs that any humans ever had? Likely not. Of the religions we've been looking at as the oldest, probably Judaism and Hinduism both have an argument for that. It, but not in its present form, but in its more primitive form. So how do these gods get to be gods? How do these gods get to be gods? That is kind of shrouded in, in mystery. And I mean that literally as in it came from way back when. For example, there have been multiple gods in human history all over the place. Just think of what you know of biblical history. So here come the Israelites believing in the one true God. Every people they met believed in multiple gods. Sometimes those gods were personifications of nature. Think about the Canaanites when Israelites went into Israel, Canaan. They believed in Baal. Well, the Baals, there were a lot of different Baals, little local gods. They were storm gods. They were gods of thunder and lightning and storm. Think of the Norse gods. You've got Thor, the god of thunder. Sometimes gods, people personified nature and put that. The Greek and Roman gods are often personified ideas. The goddess Nike is victory, the goddess of victory. Uh, the goddess of love is really a personification of the idea of love. So you go from personifying nature to personifying ideas into gods and goddesses. Hinduism is kind of like that because its roots are so far back. All these various gods and goddesses emerged in that basic way. So where did they come from? They came from people, in my view, creating them, if you will. Primitive peoples creating these gods and goddesses. And then Hinduism, as we know it today, is a fusion, a putting together of all those different cultural elements that came out of Indian society throughout the centuries. So that's a good question. Those are gods that were created by people just like other cultures created gods. Why do Hindus want their front door to face east? And Buddhists may be the same as well. You know, they don't worship in a particular way to the East. I do not know the significance of that in Hinduism, and I do not know how widespread that is in Hinduism. That's a good question. Again, there's so much diversity 
in Hinduism that it's kind of hard to say, but that I don't know. When I was a Hindu, I didn't face East. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. That's a good question. What does the red dot on the forehead mean? Well, you know that in contemporary, it's the idea of being married. But you'll see that red dot in a lot of places, and so I don't know what the ancient representations are, but that's the current representation. With respect to reincarnation, do people know who, uh, who or what they were in a former life, and do they recognize that? Apparently, if you're Shirley MacLaine, you know who you were in a prior life. Every now and then, you'll hear people come out, and they've somehow gotten in touch with who they were. You know what's always interesting to me? Okay, this is a side note, total side note. Stop the tape. I'm just kidding. But here's a side note. Have you ever noticed that anybody who can't claim to know who they were in previous lives, it was always good? I was a princess in a former life. How many people came to you and said, I was a petty thief and was executed in a former life? You never hear that. It's always, oh, I was royalty in a former life. Well, you're not now. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, it's really kind of interesting, but typically, no. I mean, by and large, people don't necessarily know who they were in a former life, but every now and then, you'll hear people get in touch with that and say that they know who they were in a former life. So, good question. Well, karma is the next major belief that kind of unites Hinduism. There's some certain basic truths or beliefs. Karma is one of those. Karma, Buddhists also believe in, it's causality. Think of it as moral cause and effect. In other words, your good deeds lead to good karma and bad deeds lead to bad karma. It's sort of like a bank account. When you do good things, you know, you get positive bank account, you do bad things, you kind of get negative bank account. And this affects the quality of your life now, but especially the quality of your life to come. And so just like Buddhists, you want to accumulate good karma through doing these right living, right proper living, good deeds, and morality so that basically you get the cause and effect. I do good things, good things happen to me. And so you can get closer to breaking this cycle of death and rebirth. So the idea of karma, really fundamental in both Buddhism and Hinduism. Dharma is the word that's used in Hinduism for the correct way of living. The Dharma is basically, think of it, as we think, as morality. Dharma is the moral or proper or the kind of the right way to live in every aspect of your life, not just religious. So, for example, there's some religions, Islam is a little bit this way. You need to pray five times a day, you need to observe this feast, you need to observe this time, and now you're right before God, right? I'm simplifying this a little bit. Dharma affects every aspect of your life. It's like how you live in every way at all. Think of it in our terms as morality. So for example, Dharma, the proper way of living, a couple of examples would be nonviolence. That you should do no harm to any living thing insofar as it's possible for you. You should do no harm. Uh, the divine nature permeates all aspects of life. This is why you'll see many Hindus, not all Hindus by by all means, but many Hindus are vegetarians. And that is so that they will only consume lower forms of life, not higher forms of life. It's all part of that dharma, that proper way of living. And the more you adhere to the proper way of living, better karma that you have. So what are these proper ways of living, if you will? They tend to be called yogas. A yoga, uh, we think of yoga as a thing. 
in Hinduism, there are many yogas. There are many pathways to attain moksha, which I'll talk about in a minute, but many pathways to enlightenment or realization. So yogas are practices. Some are practices of the mind and the body, but basically what yogas or these pathways are all about are devotion to your body, your spirit, and your mind and training them so that you will have insight and that you can grow to the point where you attain right living and liberation from the cycle of death and rebirth. So yogas are very spiritual things. So let me just talk about yoga as a thing. All right, it's just a little easier to talk about it that way. Think about yoga as you understand yoga. And so in that sense, you would do poses to train your body. But in those poses that you do, in those stretches, yoga stretches, you're actually facilitating the movement of energy, divine force through your body. Uh, Shiva, you saw in a yogic position, meditating, you know, uh, feet crossed, hands on this way, meditating, counting breaths, basically focusing on your breathing. Even in yoga in the United States, you'll kind of see this kind of thing. Well, in Hinduism, that's a spiritual practice. That is basically training yourself to have insight and realization to live. You put that together with the Dharma and you could achieve moksha or liberation or salvation from the endless cycle. And that's kind of the idea of what's going on in Hinduism. And so yoga is one of the spiritual pathways to achieve salvation or liberation. So what does salvation or liberation look like? Let me finish that thought before we go talk about yoga a little bit more. But salvation or liberation differs depending on different Hindu groups. For example, some Hindus think that this liberation is breaking the cycle of death and rebirth, and so you just become a higher consciousness. You become absorbed in the universal divine consciousness of the universe. Other Hindus believe that your soul... Once you break this, you live good enough and you break out of this cycle and achieve liberation or salvation, that your soul goes to a, a place like heaven. Not necessarily the Christian heaven, but the idea of you as an individual go live in a good place outside this cycle of death and rebirth. And so different Hindus see these things just a little bit differently. So some have a soul and go to heaven, some have a consciousness, and then others break out of that cycle. But this is kind of the purpose and the worldview. So you would ask, what's right and what's wrong? Well, nonviolence, doing no harm, behaving in a specific way and pursuing a particular yoga or practice to get there so that I can break the cycle of death and suffering and rebirth. Now, that's very different than the way Christians think about it, but those are kind of the core beliefs of Hinduism. So let's talk about one of the questions that we typically get uh, quite a bit is, is it okay for Christians to do yoga? So let's talk about that for a minute. I want to define yoga. I mean, it, you saw in Hinduism, it's defined a little differently than you and I think about it. But yoga first came to the United States with yogis, practitioners, gurus, if you will, holy men, who would come and basically teach a way of living. They're teaching Dharma. Now, whether Americans understand it or not, they're teaching you a way to live. And this stretching, posing, 
breathing, meditating is all part of the Dharma. It's a way to teach you how to live the right kind of life. It's kind of evangelistic, if you think about it, just in a different way than you and I think about evangelism. But they saw the world as this desire to attain liberation, and one of the ways to do it was stretching and breathing and meditating. I mean, that was part of it. So that's how it came to America. Well, like we do everything else, we modified it. You know, we modified Buddhism, we modified Hinduism. And so now, for most people, yoga is basically exercise, right? I mean, that's the way you typically think about it. And so if you go to the YMCA and you go take a yoga class, which somebody near and dear to me does pretty frequently, but uh, not me because I can't bend like a pretzel. I just don't, it doesn't work for me, right? But basically, if you go, they're not evangelizing you to break the cycle of birth and death and rebirth. It's trying to make you more flexible, right? So in that sense, we're not practicing yoga as Hindus understand yoga. We're exercising. We're stretching. So we use the same word, but that's a different thing, isn't it? Hindus would say, oh, that's nice that you're stretching. When are you going to get serious and actually pursue salvation? I mean, it's just a different thing, right? When we begin to breathe and meditate and we begin to center ourselves and try to find calmness and peace and some sense of transcendence through that, we've now made it a religious experience. And that's not a Christian religious experience. In other words, and I'll tell you why in a minute when we talk about Gandhi. It's fundamentally not a Christian religious experience because its end goal is to liberate what's inside you by controlling your breath, your mind, and understanding the world in the proper way. We don't think that's how you get saved. Does that make sense? So yoga in that sense is not a Christian practice. Stretching is fine. Does that make any sense? I doubt many of you are saying, hey, yoga is a very spiritual experience for me. You do find occasionally people that want to take yoga as an exercise and slap some Christian stuff with it and say, I'm going to make it spiritual and I'm going to make it Christian. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I just don't know how you make yoga Christian in the sense that it can in some way enhance your salvific experience. It just theologically doesn't make sense to me. But stretching, for those of you that can turn into pretzels, God bless you. You know, My body doesn't work that way. So yoga is exercise, fine. Yoga is a spiritual experience. It's, it's a different direction than Christianity is going. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So keep stretching. Don't worship when you're at the Y doing your yoga. Questions? Since the Hindu culture has evolved over time and is quite old, are there new gods that come along? Are there new gods that come along to Hinduism? There's, this is interesting. Yes, but it's not like saints, for example, in the Catholic Church. I realize we're talking about two different things. But, for example, the Catholic Church has a process to become a saint, right? I mean, there are people that are being uh, beatified, becoming saints now, and you've got to do these things, you've got to done some, we well, got to be dead. But then you also, you know, have to have done some miracles and things like that. And there's a body that basically controls who gets to be a saint and who doesn't. There's no body that controls who gets to be a Hindu god and who doesn't. 
So are there new Hindu gods? Yes, but it's not like you get an, a text one day saying, attention all Hindus, we've added a new god, you should all worship them. It doesn't work that way. But yes, as different groups came on, this is how Hinduism got to have so many gods, they would bring their gods, center around some of these core beliefs or truths, but yes, can you add gods? They're Hindu, uh, seriously, and I don't mean this in any negative sense, but as I've talked to Christian missionaries in India, one of the difficulties is talking about Jesus, and they say, wow, I love your Jesus, and I love to live that way, and Jesus is a god, I'm fine with that, I'll add Jesus to my pantheon of gods. And so that's, that does happen. So yes, you can, but don't think about it as anything like real official, you know, in terms of there's a, a ruling body that decides on new gods and decides whether somebody can be a god or not. That's a good question. So yes, Hinduism is very resilient because it is kind of so decentralized, if that makes any sense. It's very resilient, very difficult to stamp out. But you can understand, for example, let me just go back to the in the news, why would Muslims and Hindus have heartburn with each other? Well, let me count the ways, right? So Pakistan and India, big conflict there. Pakistan Muslim, India Hindu. Now there are economic reasons, there are other things, there are ethnic reasons, but fundamentally, if you're a Muslim, and unless you believe in Allah and Muhammad is prophet, you're in trouble, Hindus are like, sure, I'll believe in him and 500 other gods. Muslims go, I don't think you understand. And the next thing you know, blows are being exchanged. I mean, basically, you can see how those worldviews are so very different. And that's what happens. With Christianity, though, kind of move into something a little more contemporary. Here's a question that you often get asked. Is that, from a Christian point of view, why don't good people like Gandhi? Why would Christians want to exclude somebody like that? Let's talk about that for a minute. So this is Mohandas Gandhi. Probably know a little bit about Gandhi. Um, very famous, did a lot of great things. I mean, it's interesting to read his biographies and his autobiography, and I'm going to read a little bit to you from his autobiography in a minute, but that he didn't think he was all that good a guy, and there are ways that he wasn't all that good a guy. So in other words, he's not like a total little saint on earth, right? And he would, didn't agree, uh, think of himself that way. He was very Hindu. He is pursuing that liberation. He is pursuing that... Uh, dharma, that way of living in a way that would liberate him. And so he is taking mostly famous for the idea of ahimsa, A-H-I-M-S-A. That's non-violence. That's doing no harm. When you think of Gandhi, you probably think about um, basically him starving himself, uh, non-violent resistance to the British Empire to try to get India to become its own state, its own nation, out from under the British empire system in the 1900s. So you tend to think of him as nonviolent, tend to think of him as a holy man, as someone who was reasonable, tried to do good, tried to liberate his people, went to Africa, tried to use nonviolence there, nonviolent resistance. That's what he's really known for. And so that concept of nonviolence and not doing harm, whether it's physical harm or in word or in thought. I mean, the attainment of the ideal is very high. Well, you can understand why Jesus appeals to Gandhi. You look at Jesus, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and Gandhi is famously uh, quoted as saying, I, the Christians, I love their Christ, but I don't love their Christians. 
In other words, he likes Christ in a moral sense. As he read the New Testament, he thought, hey, I really like Jesus Christ as a good person. He teaches some of the same things I teach, and so we believe a lot of the same things. Gandhi had no use for the idea of sin and repentance and sacrifice and never could get over the Christian idea that someone needed to die for our sins and we needed to be redeemed. Because in the Hindu world, you find your own salvation from within in behaving in ways that are nonviolent and that are uh, kind to other people, etc. Does that make sense? So, but Christians, sometimes you'll hear people ask and say, look, your Christianity is so intolerant because how could you possibly exclude somebody like Gandhi who's such a good guy? So let me give you an idea of what he believed because he's not even slightly Christian. And by that, I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean, let me tell you how he thought about what, uh, this is from his autobiography, which is really quite good, but don't read it till you've read all your Bible. He says this at the end, my uniform experience has convinced me that there is no other God than truth. And you're thinking as a Christian, well, sounding pretty good. It is. Let's keep going. He says, you should know that the only means for the realization of truth is ahimsa. Ahimsa is nonviolence in act, thought, word, do no harm to other people. Well, let's keep going. That still sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Pretty nice guy. Wouldn't mind having him as my neighbor. He says, I can say, <clears throat> let me go on, put it this way. Self-purification must mean the purification in all forms of life. In other words, ahimsa, nonviolence, would require purification of every form of my life. Not just don't go to war and be a soldier, but to stamp out unkindness and everything. Still sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But the path of self-purification, remember this is a path to achieving this self-purification, salvation, is hard and steep. To attain perfect purity, one has to become absolutely passion-free in thought, speech, and action, rising above love and hatred, attachment and repulsion. So let me translate that a little bit. You're going to say, that sounds a little Buddhist. Yes, it does, indeed, with a different aim. What he's saying is, to attain salvation, to attain truth, which is God, would be to put into practice nonviolence to such an extent, you need to purify every thought and deed that you have. And the only way to do that is to rise above love and hatred, seeing those things as illusion. Attachment, attachment meaning uh, love your wife, love your kids. In other words, it's a real Buddhist kind of idea. You must detach yourself so that you can purify yourself enough to attain this. So that's not even slightly a Christian idea. It really comes down to this, is Hinduism sees salvation through good deeds. Christians see salvation in a good God. That is radically different. Radically different. So, is there something wrong with Gandhi? Is he a bad person? I imagine he probably behaved better than some of us, right? But his path and his trust was in the attainment that came from within, the right practice, 
purifying your thoughts and your actions so you could attain to perfect self-purification, which meant he would behave in a very nice way, but his salvation came from his behavior, his realization. Christianity couldn't be any different. On the outside, will Christians act in a good way, maybe do a lot of the things Gandhi did? Absolutely. But are they trying to achieve that purification? Completely different idea. Trust is completely in a good God who sustains and enables us and forgives us. Gandhi believes you can perfect yourself. Christians know that you can't perfect yourself. So they're very different, even though on the outside you can see why somebody would say, how could you say Gandhi? was not in heaven. He's such a good guy. We don't think anybody's a really good enough guy to get into heaven. So that's kind of where that, that parts ways. Question? Yes. Um, when you look at all the belief systems of the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians, other things that we haven't talked about in this series, how do you differentiate a religion versus mythology? So Hindus are religion, the ancient Roman gods... Is that considered to be a religion? Yeah, that's a good question. What's the difference between a religion and mythology? Whether or not you believe it. Right? In other words, would you say that the Hindu God, you as a Christian, would you say that the Hindu gods are myths, meaning they're not real? Yes, I would say that no. In my belief, I do not believe that they are real. So. I don't believe that Zeus and Jupiter were real. So they're the same in that sense. A myth makes it sound derogatory. I'm not trying to be insulting to anyone, but essentially something is mythological if you don't think it really exists. And so that really is the only difference. Did the Romans and the Greeks think that was a religion? Yes. Was it a religion? Yes. Was it untrue? Yeah. It was mythology. So it really, seriously, not trying to be glib, it's whether or not you believe it's true that makes the difference between a myth and a religion. So the Hindus have a lot of gods, but do they actually believe in the gods because they believe their salvation comes from within themselves? So are they worshiping and believing? Yes, good question. Do Hindus really believe in the gods? That's a broad-based question. There are Hindus who believe in the existence of Vishnu and Krishna, and they're at airports selling you flowers, singing Hare Krishna. I mean, really, this has happened decades ago. They seem to have died out a little bit. But anyway, basically, yes, they believe in those gods. There are Hindus who believe that in the traditional practices of doing things for the gods, do they believe that's an actual god? Maybe not at all. But do they go through the traditional practices? Yeah, they're Jews that way too, by the way, who do their traditional practices not necessarily believing or devout in a god. Are there Hindus who don't think any of those things are actually real supernatural beings, but that you, should, you can attain liberation in this life and potentially the next life through behaving properly? Yes. So in other words, you have Hindus that believe various different things about them. What holds them all together? The idea that this right conduct liberates you from hatred, death, rebirth, etc. That's the unifying idea. So no, all Hindus wouldn't believe those gods were really gods, but they would kind of buy into that basic belief, which is why they're still broadly called Hindus. So tremendous diversity 
inside Hinduism? That's a great question. Okay? Well, so, Gandhi and Jesus. Good deeds versus a good God. Fundamentally, if you're Hindu, one way or another, you believe that you, from within you, through certain practices, can become such a being as to liberate yourself, to become liberated. Christians do not believe we can become good enough to stand before God and say, I am saved and I have done it myself. We understand our anthropology is radically different. Our understanding of what are people really about. We think we were created good, fallen, and Jesus Christ redeems us. He makes us through his grace acceptable to God. Hindus don't think there's a fall in humanity. This is who we are, and you just pursue this path to become something better and be liberated. They're really very different, even though on the outside you might see good deeds done by both. You see, salvation for Hindus comes from within us. Christians' salvation is located outside of us. No matter what your Christian, uh, whatever your Christian view, as long as it's orthodox. I don't care if you're Arminian, Wesleyan, Calvinist, hyper-Calvinist, whatever you may be, we understand we are hopeless when it comes to saving ourselves. And we rely on God to save us. Buddhism, Hinduism are united in the idea of salvation can come from within us in one form or another. Buddhists and Hindus see it a little differently, but it really essentially is here inside of us for the making. And you've got multiple lifetimes to make it happen, right? Fundamental difference there between Christianity and Hinduism. So I hope that's useful for you because ultimately as you think about it, I'm not saying that this means inevitably there'd be conflict, but we answer the basic questions of life, even down to what is a human being and what is our hope in this world. We answer those questions so very differently, we should not be surprised to see that nations and large groups of believers would tend to clash with one another over the key questions of life. Well, I appreciate your attention to this. It's been interesting for me. Your questions have been great. And you probably have one final question. Hey, what are we gonna do next? Next Wednesday, we're not doing anything because that's fall break for the schools. And so here at Crossings, we don't have any Wednesday night activities next Wednesday. But on the 25th, we're going to begin a new series, a short kind of four-week series. I want to talk to you about prophecy. I want to talk to you about weird, apocalyptic prophecy, strange visions, fantastic beasts that even Harry Potter couldn't think about. I want to talk about apocalyptic visions of a young man named Daniel. And I want to talk about why that had relevance 2,500 years ago and why it's very surprisingly relevant to you and me today. So hopefully you won't need that knowledge until two weeks from now. See you guys in a couple of weeks. Thank you. <laughs>